Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. People don't necessarily need to engage in sex or masturbation in order to reach orgasm. In fact, sometimes genital stimulation isn't even necessary at all. It turns out that orgasms can potentially result from a wide range of activities, and sometimes those activities are completely non-sexual. So, let's talk about non-genital orgasms. These are orgasms that result from something other than sexual stimulation of the penis or vulva. This can include a lot of different things. For example, some people say they can orgasm from nipple stimulation alone. Some report orgasming from exercise or while taking a bumpy car ride. Others say they can orgasm from a non-sexual, painful experience, such as getting a tattoo. And yet others say they can think themselves to orgasm without any physical stimulation at all. So what do we know about all of these non-genital orgasms? For example, do our bodies and brains respond the same way they do when we have orgasms from genital stimulation? How can pain trigger an orgasm? And why are people able to reach orgasm in so many different ways? Let's talk about it. For today's episode, I consulted with Dr. Barry Komisarek, a distinguished professor of psychology at Rutgers University, Newark. Barry has more than a half century of experience studying sex science, and he is responsible for many firsts in the field, including the first identification of the brain regions activated during orgasm in women. He has published more than 180 research articles and has co-authored and edited five books, including The Science of Orgasm. I'm going to talk about some of the research on non-genital orgasms and then bring in some clips from my conversation with Barry to give you further insight. This is going to be a fun and truly fascinating episode. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Healthcare training programs usually include some information about gender and sexuality, but few of them give you adequate training if your goal is to become a sex therapist or educator. This is where the modern sex therapy institutes can help. MSTI offers a PhD program in clinical sexology, as well as multiple certification programs in sex therapy and sex education for mental health and medical professionals. All trainings can be completed 100% online. Whether you're looking for a certification or simply an opportunity to build and expand your knowledge base, MSTI can help. For more information on their programs and offerings, find the link in the show notes or visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. Women are often left in the dark when it comes to sexual health and wellness, and this is especially true when they reach their 40s and beyond. It's time to change that. The Scarlet Society is here to help you explore what it is that brings you pleasure, give you the tools you need to take charge of your sexual health, and cultivate the relationships you deserve. Over at scarletsociety.com, you'll find a wealth of informational and educational articles, podcasts, and videos. You'll also discover community support and social networking, as well as curated product selections to level up your intimate life. It's your new home for trusted resources aimed at helping women navigate sex and love after age 40. Check the show notes for the link or visit scarletsociety.com to learn more and liberate your sexuality. A recent study published in the International Journal of Sexual Health suggests that there are seemingly endless ways that people can potentially reach orgasm. This study involved an analysis of responses to an email on the popular website postsecret.com. 
This is a popular website we previously discussed in episode 117, where we talked all about the psychology of secrets. It's basically a place people can go to anonymously share things they've never shared with anyone else before. So for this study, the researchers analyzed a post on this site in which the author described having an orgasm while exercising. A total of 919 people replied to this post, most of whom described various ways that they themselves had reached orgasm without any sexual stimulation. Most commonly, the replies described situations where people orgasmed from some kind of exercise. Among the many exercises linked to orgasm were horseback riding, biking, and sitting and jumping on a Pilates ball. Even though these activities were non-sexual, it's not that surprising that they might cause orgasms in some people. For example, many of them create genital friction or pressure. Also, many of them were probably taking place in a gym, which we know can be a sexually charged environment because there might be a lot of sexy or scantily clad people around. So you might already have a bit of arousal to begin with. And if this is coupled with some genital sensation, it's easy to see how this might get some people going. I kind of wish I had exercise-induced orgasms. I mean, it sure would make it easier to get up the motivation to exercise. But anyway. Another common way people said they orgasmed was from riding a vehicle, like a car, truck, or airplane. And some even said they got orgasms while riding a roller coaster, particularly when it was a bumpy ride. As one participant said, I kept my old Ford pickup for two years, pretending to try and get the suspension fixed, but it was too enjoyable from the vibrations when I wore too tight jeans. Again, this kind of orgasm isn't super surprising because you're getting vibration and sensation in the genital region. And we know that vibration can be a powerful route to orgasm, which is why vibrating sex toys are so popular. But as you go down the list in this study, some of the activities linked to orgasm begin to raise more questions about the pathway. How exactly do these activities lead to orgasm when you're not getting genital stimulation of any kind? For example, some participants said that they orgasmed while experiencing a lot of pain, such as while getting a tattoo or body piercing, or even while being in severe pain from a kidney stone or a dental procedure. In the words of one participant, the most intense, surprisingly unexpected orgasm was when I got a tattoo on my foot. The pain was awful, and when it was done, the tattoo artist started rubbing the gel on my foot. Something about the juxtaposition of the intense pain, immediately followed by intense pleasure, was too much. I'm not sure if he knew what was happening, but he rubbed my foot until it was done. So how might pain lead to orgasm? I'm going to let Barry explain this one. Let's listen in as he talks about what happens in the brain during orgasm and the interesting connection between pleasure and pain. Many of the regions of the brain that are activated during orgasm in women and men, and by the way, the similarities in brain regions activated by orgasm in women and men, those similarities are much greater than any differences. The biggest difference that we see in men and women's orgasm is after the orgasm, when men show a refractory period, when it's very difficult to elicit, but not impossible to elicit orgasms, a second orgasm after the first, whereas women have a relative greater ease of having multiple orgasms. But that's the biggest difference. Otherwise, the same areas are activated. Plus, the thing that is really intriguing to me 
and I'm trying to figure this out, is that many of the same brain regions that are activated by orgasm are regions that are classically also activated by pain. So it seems like there is some kind of intimate connection between the pain pathway and the orgasm pathway. And it may be that there's a, an interposed inhibitory link, which is why the orgasm is so effective in blocking pain. And from the genitals all the way up into the brain, not only is, are the brain regions the same for orgasm and pain, but the sensory pathways through the uh, so-called spinal thalamic pathway. The spinal thalamic pathway is a, is a pain-carrying pathway. And uh, there was a very interesting study done by uh, neurologists, uh, Berwick and Light, who showed that in men and women with uh, severed spinal cords or, or partially severed spinal cords where the pain pathway was severed, but the touch pathway was not, was still intact, not only did they lose the uh, sense of pain, but they lost the ability to have orgasms, even though their touch sensitivity was unaffected. It was normal because just the pain pathway was cut, but that also blocked orgasm. And even though they had them intentionally do very intense genital touch stimulation, they couldn't have orgasms. It really focuses on the, the fact that there's a very interesting common pathway, common mechanism between pain and orgasm. You know, it's paradoxical, but it's, there's got to be something going on there, something important. They're both highly arousing. And, it, you know, if you're just looking at the autonomic response, like heart rate, blood pressure, pupil dilation, they're basically equivalent in pain and, and orgasm. Both are strongly arousing and activate the sympathetic division of the autonomic system. So fascinating, right? If you lose the ability to experience pain, you seem to lose the ability to experience pleasure. So I think what Barry is describing here can potentially help us to understand why something that might be painful could also be experienced as pleasurable. There's a common pathway in the body and brain here. And part of it may be the release of endorphins that activate the opioid system when we experience pain. This is our body's way of trying to block the pain, but it can also have this euphoric effect. It's kind of like the runner's high, if you've ever heard about that before. When people are engaged in very intense running, think like a marathon, they often end up with a lot of pain in their legs, right? But their body is producing endorphins to help block that pain, and it allows them to keep going. But at the same time, they feel this very euphoric rush, right? And it's thought that this kind of thing might be adaptive, that basically it's the body's way of helping us to persist at things that are important. So if you think about this in our ancestral past— being able to push through the pain in order to scavenge for food or to run away from a bear or a tiger would have been a very adaptive thing for survival. We need to find a way to block the pain and keep going if we want to survive. But an unintended side effect of this might be that certain types of pain might trigger intense pleasure and maybe even orgasm. Let's move on to thought or imagery-induced orgasms next. Some people refer to this as thinking off. It's kind of like jacking off, but you're getting yourself to orgasm 
just by thinking about something that really does it for you. In my own research on sexual fantasies for Tell Me What You Want, I surveyed almost 4,200 Americans about their favorite fantasy of all time, and I asked them a ton of different questions about it. But one of the questions I asked was, have you ever had an orgasm just from thinking about your favorite fantasy alone without any genital stimulation? And what I found was that about 1 in 10 people said that they had had an orgasm this way before. This suggests that, while not super common, a fair number of people seem to be able to have orgasms simply from thinking about their favorite fantasies. But how does that work exactly? And is a thought-induced orgasm physiologically similar to one that comes from genital stimulation? Let's listen to what Barry has to say on this based on his research with Gina Ogden and Beverly Whipple. I was very skeptical. Gina came to us and said that she she has women who claim that they can have orgasms just by thinking. And I said, I'm really skeptical of that. But with Beverly, we previously did uh, physiological measures showing that the heart rate approximately doubles and the uh, blood pressure approximately doubles during orgasm. Pupils approximately double in diameter during orgasm. And the pain thresholds during orgasm, everything doubles. Everything, you know, seemed to double in intensity, all those indicators of sympathetic activation. So we took those measurements. Gina recruited 10 women for our study, and we we measured their blood pressure, heart rate, pupil diameter, and pain thresholds. And we also did the same measurements. We asked the same women after they had the orgasm by imagery alone we asked them to have orgasms by genital self-stimulation. So we got both types of orgasm in each of the 10 women. And they showed the typical increases in all those measures, regardless of whether they were uh, having orgasms by thinking or whether they were having orgasms by genital self-stimulation. I asked them, you know, how do you do it? What are you doing? And it was very variable. Some of the women said that they had these, you know, erotic fantasies. But I remember one woman said that she thought of her lover uh, whispering in her ear. Another woman said that she had uh, an orgasm by thinking of walking along the shore, the ocean shore, on a warm spring afternoon uh, with sun shining and, and a beautiful day. Another woman said that. She imagined energy chakras going up and down her body, and she she maximized the energy. It was very, very different uh, types of fantasy. But nevertheless, they all they really showed the increases in the physiological indicators of orgasm. I've done some brain imaging in some of the women who have imagery-induced orgasm, and many of the same regions of the brain are activated when they just think themselves into orgasm. So there you have it. You can indeed think yourself to orgasm. And those orgasms seem to be physiologically indistinguishable from orgasms that emerge from genital stimulation. I don't know if that's something that I could personally experience or not. I guess I haven't really tried it, but maybe it's time to experiment. I'm guessing it would take longer if you don't have the accompanying genital stimulation, so now I'm wondering if they measured time to orgasm in that study. I also wonder if people who have a more active or vivid imagination just have an easier time with this. 
I would suspect that they would. But anyway, let's move on and talk about other kinds of non-genital orgasms. Let's talk about nipple play. A lot of people across genders and sexual orientations find stimulation of the chest area and or nipples to be arousing and pleasurable. And there are many women who have reported that they can reach orgasm from nipple stimulation alone with no corresponding genital touch. But how does that lead to orgasm exactly? Barry actually tested this in the lab. He essentially asked women to engage in different forms of stimulation. Sometimes they would be stimulating parts of the genitals. Sometimes they would be stimulating their nipples. And sometimes they'd be stimulating another part of their body as a control. And while all of this was happening, Barry was looking at what was going on inside the brain through brain imaging. Here's what he found. I asked him to do nipple self-stimulation, and I expected to see activation of the chest area, which we did see. But in addition to the chest area, we got activation of exactly the same place that's activated by the clitoris, the the vaginal, and cervical self-stimulation. And that can account for why women, many women, have described that they have orgasms from nipple stimulation. So it appears that nipple stimulation activates the same regions of the brain as genital stimulation. Thus, the fact that nipples are feeding into the genital sensory cortex helps us to understand why nipplegasms are a thing. So people sometimes orgasm from pain, mental imagery, and nipple play. But there are actually a lot of other non-genital orgasms out there. Going back to the study I was talking about at the top of the show, where people posted on Post Secret about their non-genital orgasms, some people discussed orgasming from stimulation of the ear, such as when they had it licked or sucked. Also, some people had orgasms while giving childbirth, and yet others said they had orgasmed during urination or defecation. For example, as one participant said, when I have really bad gas pains and have to poop, I sometimes have an orgasm, and they are strong. One time it happened in a meeting at work with several others, and I had to look down and grip the arms of the chair I was in. I was throbbing so hard. Barry actually has insights into all of these types of orgasms. So let's have a listen. The sensory input from the vagina and the cervix is via the pelvic nerve. That's the nerve that we found carries the pain blocking signal. It's also the nerve that carries sensation from the vagina and cervix. It also carries sensation from the rectum and possibly the prostate. Nobody really knows for sure yet, but the rectum and the anal region, the the distal rectum, there are anecdotal reports of uh, a man, uh, say, who had um, orgasms every time he defecated. And there's that crosstalk between the rectum and and the genitals. Women frequently say that when they're giving birth through the birth canal, through the vagina and cervix, they say they, they have this intense urge to defecate. Because it's the same nerve, and we don't have that much experience with the pelvic nerve. It's it's an internal visceral nerve. And so we may confuse whether the real source is the vagina or the rectum. And because of the confusion, it also can lead to why we feel pleasure from rectal stimulation or vaginal stimulation. You know, it's the same nerve. 
And that could be one way of uh, one kind of explanation that the same nerves are activated. We did a study of in humans stimulating the vagus via, there's a, a connection from the ear. There's a branch of the, of the sensory vagus that carries sensation from, um, it's a region of the ear right near the opening, the ear opening. It's called the simbaconchi, that region for some reason, has a branch of the vagus nerve. We stimulated that, and we found that the genital sensory cortex was activated by that stimulation. So that makes it more plausible that vagus stimulation in the women with the spinal cord injury could have orgasms because it, we see that vagus stimulation activates the genital sensory cortex. So that could be another way of accounting for Non-genital orgasms, people who have orgasms from ear stimulation, a lover licking their ear, uh, people have described having orgasms from that. It could be via the vagus branch. One thing that's very puzzling to me and apparently very reliable is that men and women, I've spoken to many men and women with severed spinal cord, and they say that, uh, very typical, that the skin region around the injury site, around the level of the injury, of the spinal cord injury, the skin becomes hypersensitive. And if brushed lightly, accidentally, somebody brushes, walks past and brushes up against them accidentally, it's excruciatingly painful. But if the right person stimulates that area in the right way, they have orgasms. They have whole body orgasms from it. These are people with severed spinal cord. So the skin on the trunk, when stimulated, can produce orgasms. So it's all about the vagus nerve. Orgasms that arise from childbirth, defecation, stimulation of the ear, and more, might all have the same thing in common, which is that they're stimulating the vagus nerve. And we know that this nerve plays an important role in experiencing sexual pleasure. Incidentally, the vagus nerve also plays a role in certain reflexes, including sneezing. And I've seen some reports of people who actually report having an orgasm every single time they sneeze. So maybe these diverse non-genital orgasms are all connected by the same thing. While we're learning more and more about non-genital orgasms, there's still a lot we don't yet understand. For example, we don't know how often people experience these types of orgasms or how common they are in the general population. Also, while some people describe these orgasms as occurring in the presence of a partner, others were alone. So we don't yet know how much other people matter in all of this. And while Barry has studied a handful of people with non-genital orgasms in the lab, most of the work in this area is based on self-reported data. So we'd certainly benefit from more physiological or neurological data to help us better understand diversity in orgasm. That said, what all of this tells us is that orgasms don't seem to be an experience limited to sex or stimulation of the genitals. Instead, they appear to be a multi-sensory experience that can potentially arise from many different kinds of stimulation. This means we've probably only scratched the surface when it comes to understanding when, how, and why people might have orgasms. If you want to learn more about the science of orgasms, check out episode 60 of this podcast, where I interviewed orgasm researcher Dr. Nicole Prowsey. We discussed some of the other fascinating things science has taught us about orgasm, as well as some of the other things we don't yet know. And it ties in really well with what we've been discussing today. 
One of the things Nicole and I chat about is how scientists don't necessarily agree on what counts as an orgasm. Is it a physiological thing that's all about genital contractions? Is it a psychological experience of pleasure? It gets complicated when we see that in the lab, some people report having orgasms without having genital contractions, which tells us that different people might be counting very different kinds of experiences as orgasm. And that's something that might be particularly relevant when we're talking about something like non-genital orgasms. So go check that episode out. Many thanks to Barry for sharing his time and insights today, and many thanks to you, the listener, for supporting this show. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, sexandpsychology at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.